Short-haired widows, short-haired widows, Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Will Miller, political scientist, now employed as an associate vice president with Campus Labs. And joining me today is a new co-host uh, by the name of Zach. And we have uh, found Zach because we have heard from listeners over time that we are uh, lacking in a far-left voice um, or a, a more-left voice than maybe Mike. Uh, and listeners were always curious about seeing what a, a more progressive, left-leaning individual might bring to the show. Um, and Mike uh, has known Zach for a while. So, Zach, we're glad you're here. If you want to give us a little bit of background and let the, the listeners know about yourself. Yeah, hello. Thanks for having me. Um, like you said, I'm Zach. I've uh, I've got a bachelor's in philosophy, minored in political science. I was uh, I obtained a master's degree in political science focused on political theory. Uh, I started another grad program in neurophilosophy, but decided that the academic route was no longer for me. Uh, you know, we've we've called me an anarcho-communist. Uh, as far as defining that, I think that that's the most appropriate term for me, just given the strong anarchist and, when I say libertarian, I mean left libertarian uh, views that I hold. Um, but a lot of my drive for analyzing capitalism, finding its flaws, pushing for other directions and, and opportunities other than what we know as capitalism is largely driven by Marxian economics. And I just I think that Marxian economics and analysis provides some of the strongest critical tools out there, uh, especially when it comes to both economics and the environment. As far as the anarchist part, like I said, it's more I'm very libertarian in my beliefs as far as personal choice is concerned and the the anarchist ten, tendency to attempt organization from a non-hierarchical level and push from there. Awesome. Like I said, it's definitely going to be a different voice for us, and I'm excited for us to talk uh, today and obviously on the, the Wednesday show, too, to to get a sense of, of again, a, a different viewpoint and a different approach to, to what we're seeing happening in politics today. So let's go to get on to our first story, and I think obviously the, the first story to really talk about this week is our one-week delayed State of the Union address from President Trump uh, delivered Tuesday night. Um, obviously a speech that's getting very different reviews depending on which side of the aisle you're approaching it from. For Republicans, they're seeing this as one of Trump's more presidential moments. They're seeing it as a sign of him calling for unity. Um, they're seeing it as a plus side even within the party that there was no national emergency declared in it. And then obviously on the left, we have lots of concerns about fact-checking. We have concerns about um, the tone that's being set, a tone of fear, um, the emphasis obviously brought into abortion, the emphasis on immigration policy, um, and then obviously the women of white being a, a spectacle in and of themselves, um, depending on which side of the aisle you look at it again, it's going to be how you view that. And then obviously, too, Stacey Abrams, the uh, runner-up in the Georgia gubernatorial race, delivering a, a very heartfelt response that rallied uh, the left in a lot of ways. So, so, Zach, what was your take on the State of the Union Tuesday night? Uh, I just find it hilarious that Republicans are considering this one of Trump's more presidential moments 
because it's just an obvious sign of how desperate they are for anything that is not uh, the normal, pathetic statements that he provides. I mean, we want a world of not war. and There cannot be a world with war. What was it? There cannot be a world of peace and something if there's war and investigation. I mean, he used it for his own personal gain, obviously. Uh, you know, he tried to take credit for the amount of women that have been elected, which, you know, fair. He is the reason that a lot of women got elected. Yes, yeah, so he is the reason most of them were there. It's just not in the way he might want. Right, yeah. But, I mean, of course he'll take credit for it because he's a megalomaniac. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's pretty much par for the course what I expected. I can't say anything was surprising. I supported almost none of it. The I did find it hilarious that he wants to – to tackle HIV when his administration has proactively uh, defunded and attacked some of the most successful programs we have for fighting AIDS in the past two years. And now he's, you know, saying that we're going to, going to tackle HIV in a 10 year plan. Uh, my guess is that it involves celibacy as opposed to real um, protection and, and education, but Overall, I was unimpressed, and it's pretty par for the course for me. Yeah, and I'll say for mine, I mean, to, to start with, and I think a lot of our listeners have, have pointed this out on, on social media, that the State of the Union's a, it's a spectacle at this point. It always has been a spectacle. Um, but for me, as someone who does lean to the right, I will say that I don't know if it's desperation. I don't know if it's the fact that he actually did sound presidential. I was not bothered by this State of the Union like I have been um some of Trump's other public speeches from a appearance standpoint. Um, I do feel like he did have um, some some good messaging and some good undertones to what he was saying. Um, from my end, obviously, I was very happy that he was not going to declare the national emergency during the State of the Union um, in terms of building the border wall. And, again, the main reason for that is, obviously, there's going to be clear shockwaves sent in terms of executive versus legislative power around that issue and going into the House um, and using that opportunity on an invitation to the House to basically usurp congressional power would have been um, even more telling in a lot of ways. But I do share with you the the concerns about the fact that, you know, I mean, there were clear messages within that address on any investigation into him was going to be a national security threat, which seems to be um, a bit of a stretch. And also in terms of the the stretching of fact, whatever we want to use there, I mean, one of the things that still jumps out at me is his continued use of El Paso as being a safe American city. Um, you know, Veronica Escobar, who represents the El Paso area in the House, was quick to point out that, you know, we were getting safe before the any wall. We were getting safe before Trump was ever around. This has nothing to do with him. Um, and not even that, but just more importantly, the the factual side on in her point of basically it was a safe city long before they ever saw that wall being built in 2008. So the political convenience is, is obviously there, but I could say the same thing about all of Obama's State of the Unions, all of Bush's State of the Unions, where we use this opportunity to really pull one particular piece. Now, now Zach, the one thing I would say, thinking about some of your views, um, is obviously Trump used this as an opportunity to try to rally Republicans back around the base a little bit. And one of the ways he really seemed to focus on that was by touching a lot on abortion and then obviously the 
the kind of very direct statement related to his views on socialism and the United States' future with socialism, um, and then obviously the cameraman being very quick to find Bernie Sanders, to find Ocasio-Ortiz, um, and look at those groups within um, the group. What were your thoughts on that part of his speech in particular? Well, it was the standard tropes that have been uh, pulled out against socialism for time immemorial. Uh, I will say that I, as as per usual, AOC and uh, Bernie Sanders' reactions were classic. Uh, they were having none of his stuff. Uh, the socialism stuff, I mean... He's this country is so misinformed as for what socialism is, as to the variance of it, as to the historical realities of attempts at socialism, of successful institutions of socialism, of our proactive undermining of uh, foreign nations sovereignty attempting socialism. So. Personally, I, I thought that it was malformed nonsense as I consider much of what he says. I do find the the play for the abortion crowd, we'll say, uh, particularly desperate. I think that Republicans at this point are just holding on to any scrap of hope that they can control Trump enough to get through these few years. And he is clearly running their patients thin, so he needs to attempt in some way to get them back on his side for the hopes of 2020. If I'm if I'm not uh, mistaken, I do believe Trump's abortion views have swung differently over the past two and a half decades now. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, there's also no surprise there that He's a flip-flopper, if we want to hearken back to the, the Bush days, you know, when that was their favorite uh, thing. To John Kerry term. Yeah, of course. Uh, so, I don't know. He was immediately shut down by one of his own in the Supreme Court the other day, so I found that humorous. Yeah, we'll talk about that coming up here in a little bit, too. Um, so, if we flip sides and look at the Democratic response, so obviously Stacey Abrams delivers the Democratic response very much um, centered on voting rights and racism in the United States. Um, what did you think about the Abrams response and the Democratic choice to use Abrams? It was fine. I personally found Bernie Sanders' response to be much more useful and well put together. Uh, you know, Abrams started with a heartfelt story. She moved into some decent points. She ended with a God bless America or something along those lines. It's it's not for me, and it's in, it's indicative of classic Democratic politics to me, although it is a bit more progressive, and I think that's what they're realizing. They're, they're trying to hold on to this Clintonian, uh, neoliberal Democratic Party, but then, you know, make sure that they, they shout out to the LGBT community every now and then and emphasize that they care about immigrants, but... I, I did not find hers indicative of any real progressive change. Um, I, I'm glad you say that because, to be completely honest, I found hers to be this very normative, I wish this is what America was like, sort of just long talk. 
Um, I started with the fact that, in all honesty, I find Stacey Abrams to be completely irrelevant to the national political scene today. Um, yeah. I don't think outside of Georgia people care the way that apparently national Dems feel like they care about Stacey Abrams. Um, I agree completely with that. Um, I have to be honest. I mean, without having anything beyond, you know, her, her previous experience, it's not like she's going to be thrust into a national role anytime soon. I felt like there was no policy discussion whatsoever. If anything, I feel like maybe they were trying to, to convince voters that Trump was a racist and to vote for Democrats. But I'm going to be honest. At this point, if people are okay with Trump, nothing is going to make them all of a sudden decide Trump is an awful racist. Um, Stacey Abrams is definitely not going to get them <laughs> right. to feel That's, that way. That is and in all honesty, I feel like card. Democrats, I feel like they took the easy road here instead of having to figure out who out of the 2020 crowd or what to do with a Bernie or an AOC and said, Stacey Abrams is as safe as we could possibly get and she'll go out there and sing a nice little message and we won't have to worry about it. Yeah, um, I'm supposing... I presume that Cory Booker was busy that night or something, and that's why they didn't choose him. Uh, you know, like I said, Bernie's was 30 minutes long. It came full of facts. There was no sentimental nonsense to clutter it up. And the Democratic Party did exactly what it did during the 2016 election. They complained that he was distracting from the central aim and drive and view of the party. And, you know, we got to remember, Bernie is not a Democrat. He's an independent and he is a democratic socialist as far as ideologically speaking. So he didn't technically undermine the Democratic Party because he's not a Democrat. Yep, absolutely. And again, I mean, just for me, it used that opportunity to have something with some point to it. I just... Stacey Abrams has yet to be able to prove anything that she's claimed in the Georgia governor's race. And I just, if I never hear from her again, it will be all too soon, I feel like. It's, you know, I, I sat there, and as soon as it flipped over to Abrams, I tried to watch the first few minutes, and all I could think was, here we are with the crybaby who can't accept she lost, and now she's somehow become the national spokesman for the Democratic people. And I, it's not going to be Barack Obama. She's not going to be running for president in 2020 or 2024 based on this one speech. It just wasn't that good of a speech either. Well, it was funny because I was I was reviewing the already too long of a list of non-starters that the Democrats have put forward as uh, candidates, and she had made a statement at some point like, "I'm not ruling out 2020." So she doesn't have to. Everybody's ruled it out for her. <laughs> that's, a, that's a that's a very good point. Yeah, it's one of those Stacey where it's like you know it's like when professional baseball players announce their retirement six years after they last played. You're not retiring. You just don't have a team. So exactly. Um, and again, I just, I feel like, especially coming back with Trump, who we knew was going to, we knew there was going to be substance in that speech going in that was going to at least raise question marks, that was going to lead to debate, that was going to lead to divide. And then you put up something just so bland. Um, and I recognize that there are a lot of Americans who agree with a lot of her sentiments, but there's nothing in that address that makes it a Republican versus Democratic issue. There's nothing in her address that directly responded in my eyes to what Trump was bringing forward. Um, just again, just a, a big missed opportunity. And again, from a Bernie angle, I mean, I, I did listen to his address, um, his response, and I will agree with you completely. It was far more pointed. It was far more policy-based. It was far more, and I, I'm not one to normally say this about Bernie ideas, it was actually more realistic. Um, 
in many senses. And if the Democrats want to figure out what to do in 2020 to make sure they don't shoot themselves in the foot with 20 candidates in eight different worldviews, one of the ways is to start testing and seeing what messaging is resonating. Um, a Bernie Sanders response would have helped them see that. But, again, an opportunity they're not going to have now. Absolutely. And, you know, you're, you're spot on. It was so bland. Watch. I mean, I'm going to be honest. I, I scrolled through that one a bit. Uh, especially after the, this was the longest, uh, not state, quite, not quite. Was this the second? I know that Trump's had two of the three top longest, right? Like Clinton's in 2000. Maybe this that was, was the, the longest. second longest. Yeah. It did. It was longer than his first. It was under Clinton's 2000 address by, I think, seven or eight minutes, six minutes, something like that. Right. So especially after you've already tired your base from hearing him talk for however long to throw up something so bland, it's not a, it's not the best choice. That being said, have you ever really watched a response to the State of the Union that was impressive? No, my favorite's still Marco Rubio in the water glass. <laughs> Uh, what was the guy from, who was the guy from Louisiana? He tried to oh, run. Oh, Bobby Jindal too, yeah. yeah. That, that was another, down the stairs and oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're always, they're always interesting in that reason. But again, both of those were legitimate, you know, Repu- Republicans were testing imaging on two people that they thought could be president. Right, absolutely. But again, let's, it's, let's actually, based, it's, uh, it's empty as far as content's concerned in all, almost every case. And so it's, like you said, the best use of that time would have been sheer research on on the uh, the viewing public. Yep, so let's actually, you know, we've talked about Bernie and AOC a little bit. Obviously, another big story from this week was uh, AOC um, formally announcing the Green New Deal, um, which, to make very clear for listeners, obviously, this is not pending actual les- legislation. Um, this would more or less be viewed as, you know, a piece of legislation that would point us in a direction moving forward um, in the sense that it's not binding. This is not committing us to these um, proposals that are included within. Um, but it is definitely a, a new direction. It is definitely a, a legislative package that we're seeing, again, support from some of the 2020 crowds. So if we think about uh, Cory Booker, Warren, Harris, all co-sponsoring the resolution and coming out in, in strong support. Um, so. Zach, what's your thought on the, the AOC legislation from this week? Well, I think AOC got out ahead of any of the critics, and she said, you know, this is not, like you said, pending legislation. This is a roadmap. This is the first real action being taken at a federal level towards a comprehensive attempt to deal with climate change and all of the reverberations in different forms of social inequities that will be the result of it and are already the result of it. Uh, I, I I think I heard AOC say that she, when they went in with this and announced it on Thursday, they had 60 co-sponsors already signed on, and that's a pretty impressive number for such a thing. Now, Booker and, you know, I think, I think Warren would be on board regardless and maybe Booker, but I think a lot of the people will immediately jump on because they know that they cannot afford to oppose this or even waver on it at first because it's one non-binding, uh, but two, the the left and the center left, and I, I would wager that a lot of the people on the right care about the environment, and so 
to, to even attempt to oppose this would be shooting yourself in the foot. I think you're right in the sense of, again, in the normative perfect world, there are a lot of ideas here you just can't necessarily be against, especially on the environmental side. Um, although I have heard from a lot of my friends that are pro-environment, um, even on the left, that have some major concerns here. Um, and some of those concerns are the obvious ones. Um, and I think that, you know, a Democratic senator, I think it was uh, Maisie Hirono from Hawaii, made it very clear that for for her home state, uh, the lack of airplane travel would be a, a major issue because the light rail is going to take a long time to get there. Um, <laughs> a lot of them mentioning the idea of, again, the, the methane-producing cows going away is going to be a problem, um, which they even pointed out in their FAQs, which to me just it, – it's where, again, I get stuck on the – is this a, you know, is the RNC's call to the socialist wish list? Is this the green dream in a positive or negative way? Um, or is this AOC basically trying to, to get in and get a lot of attention, which obviously that part's worked. And I agree completely with you. I do not believe that Cory Booker would ever put this legislation forward with his name on it, but I think he has no choice but to sign on. Yeah. Because you can't be the guy who's against this. But for me, here's my issue is where it goes away from the actual green environmental piece, which I think there's some solid ideas in there. I don't think it's a, a solution that, that works in practice today. But when I get into lines like economic security for all who are unable or unwilling to work, um, that's a, that's a game changer for me. Um, the idea that economic security for people who just flat out say, I don't want to be productive. I don't want to contribute economically to society. It really gets into the issue then of, you know, what about this is actually practical and what about this is the wish list? Um, so what do you think about those types of responses that we're hearing a lot from, from myself, to be honest, in this case, and from those on the right? Okay, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, yeah. first, first, let me start with The Onion had an amazing article uh, title this week, and it was Cory Booker apologizes to Wall Street for all of the mean things he's about to say about them. So, you know, that's kind of how I see Cory Booker. He never would, <laughs> he never would have suggested this. Okay. Let's get back to objections from the left in particular. Uh, I don't believe it says anything explicitly about stopping or preventing the further use of nuclear energy. Obviously, that's a problem uh, for people at least as far left and environmentally concerned as myself. They also don't explicitly get rid of the possibility of carbon sequestration and other other technological wishes that people are holding on to, dreams, if you will, that will that will solve this problem, which leads into the real the real meat of the issue is, yeah, you're right. Hawaii would suffer from this as far as tourism is concerned, right? Now, if we, if we force a state to basically subsist solely on tourism, you know, that's a, that's a historical problem that we have not developed enough industry and sustainable economy there that it's not just completely reliant upon people going there for six nights, seven days, right? Uh, yeah, cows are a big problem. Meat in general is a big problem. Now, before anyone blows up on me, I eat meat, but I am also very conscious that 
And so in doing so, I am contributing detrimentally to the environment. There's there's just a mountain of facts that would shut anyone down if they tried to oppose it without reading those. Uh, well, good news, Zach. I, I, for some reason, I'm the vegetarian in our group here, so we balance out. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I, you know, I try to cut down on meat, but uh, beef is the most detrimental as far as that's concerned. Um, so, you know, you're, you're saying that the parts that rubbed you wrong were, I'm guessing, particularly the word unwilling to work. Am I correct? Unwilling is definitely the word there where it's just, especially, it's not that the word unwilling on face value bothered me, but then the lack of explanation to actually explaining what economic security would would look like. Um, Because, I mean, there's programs in there that say federal job guarantees, universal health care, affordable, safe, adequate housing. That tells you there's at least a beyond bare minimum need. Sure. Uh, I'm personally of the opinion that we've got too many jobs, people are working too much as is, and that universal basic income is the best shot that we've got. Uh, you know, people can, people can criticize them for not providing explicit bullet points as to how they're gonna, how we're gonna afford to pay the livings of people that are unwilling to work. But then if they did include it, people would have just criticized them for being long-winded and overly wordy and, you know, I work in I work in tech, and there are a lot of a lot of people that are paid a ton of money that do not do anything. So, what's worse, the overcompensation of people that act like they're doing something, or the minimum compensation of people that just are blunt and honest about it and say, you know what, I don't want to do anything. It's like, well, okay, at least we're not going to blow huge sums of resources on you because you're you sit in meetings all day. I guess my question that comes back, though, is if we think about just the elimination of fossil fuels, that's going to be well over a million jobs from people that do want to work. Yep. What do we do with those people? Well, I would suggest that, first of all, we all start working less. Second of all, consumption just has to drop. The, The realities of dealing with the ecological quagmire that we have absolutely gotten ourselves into a long time ago and have just dug deeper and deeper are intense, right? Like it's the same deal as to why I think we didn't push for the full on single payer healthcare. How many jobs were going to be lost? How many people work for Anthem and these other giants? It's a cruel reality that in order to fight climate change, there have to be less consumption, less production in general. So I would say that we start spreading out how much people work. And here's, I guess this is what it all comes back to for me, is obviously there there are points in this proposal that I completely agree with. And there are things you're saying right now that I completely agree with. Consumption is at an all-time high. We do need to curb back consumption to some degree. Now, my issue, obviously, is I don't know if the government's the one who needs to force that to happen. But is this the way to float these ideas to the general public? Because if I am just average American worker and I look at this for two seconds or read a news release, I see three things. Airplanes are going away. You don't want me to consume as much, and you're going to kill my cow. Um, And I'm not sure if that's the way you start to build consensus or help people realize the parts of this that are just cold, hard facts. Um, 
or is this something that puts them off? Or, Zach, is this something that is just one of those radical proposals that we float because we know if we float the extreme, we can at least start chipping away at something smaller today and hopefully build towards that 30 or 40 years down the road, if we have 30 or 40 years in your eyes? Yeah, well, unfortunately, we don't have that time. Uh, as long here, let's let's use this. I don't find this a radical proposition, so the listeners can use that to kind of judge where I fall on the spectrum. But the fact that the left can criticize this so much already is indicative of how it's not radical. First of all, second of all, what medium do you want us? to try and convey this stuff about. I mean, there were federal websites. Trump shut them down. There are movies. There are TV shows. There are entire journals. There are There's everything that you could want. There are huge international conferences of which we took part in and agreed to, and now we're trying to back out of. What, what method, what medium is going to get across the harsh realities in a way that's non-offensive to somebody. I mean, you know, I live in Kentucky. I see friends of coal bumper stickers and license plates all over the place. Like there's nothing that we can say that's going to convince a guy that has a friends of coal license plate that we need to take action on the environment, right? Because it's solely in their eyes about taking away their jobs. Now, fortunately, AOC has covered that in this. It's there's a lot of emphasis about retraining, and and that's the cruel reality. I mean, Trump and the people in Kentucky are the only ones that think coal's coming back. All of the energy companies have moved away from it, and they do not plan on investing back into it. So it's 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 a total facade, and they're not offering any real options, whereas this one at least attempts to. Yeah, and again, I, I can I, I do agree that I mean there are provisions built into this for the spillover effects. I think we can see that. Again, my question, of course, is how workable this is and what it looks like. More importantly, and again, being completely transparent with with listeners, I mean, if I'm AOC on this, I have just put a giant target on my back, um, and that is going to be the left and the right to some degree. As a Republican, I, I'm torn. I mean, when I look at where I'm going to send donations for 2020, I can tell you right now, whoever wants to primary AOC is going to get whatever I can donate. Um, but at the same time, I sit there and I'm like, let's let AOC hang around because the left is going to struggle with how to handle some of these ideas and the fact that she does have a platform. And people can say whatever they want about her. She's like Trump. She knows how to use social media to rally her base. Um, yeah, for sure. She definitely knows how to draw a crowd and draw attention. You know, that's pretty much where the comparison stops because she's coherent and intelligent beyond that. Uh, so I think she already had the target on her back. I mean, a video came out of her dancing in absolutely zero way that's offensive from college as a music video. And Republicans tried to skewer her for that. They're trying to skewer someone for dancing, a woman, a woman dancing in 2018. I mean, it's pathetic, but the, the target has already been there, and they're going to continue to fail to hit it, in my opinion. Yeah, and again, I think the, the interesting part here, though, is Pelosi was very quick on oh, sounding God. less than thrilled with this. I mean, it was it was very clear. I mean, this was the equivalent. I think Pelosi's quote, let me pull it up. 
quite frankly, I haven't seen it, but I do know it's enthusiastic, and we welcome all the enthusiasm that is out there, which I feel like is the same thing she says to, like, her, her grandchildren when she goes to their, like, school plays. Like, yeah, that was very enthusiastic, and you tried really hard. Now go sit down and wait 20 years. Yeah, she um, she is scum, in my opinion. She is completely representative of why the Democrats lost, why they're – they haven't moved forward as a progressive party in so long. I thought you were going to say the quote where she said, you know, the green dream or whatever it's called. And she didn't even pay attention to the name and she slandered it like that. She's trash. I don't care what she says. I, I really wish the Democrats would step up their game and get rid of people like her and Chuck Schumer leading these massive elements of the party. And, you know, you've got people that, only know who Pelosi is. They don't know who AOC is. And when Pelosi drops crap like that on them, you know, that's going to unfortunately sway people that would absolutely support AOC's Green New Deal, but they're just, they don't have the time to dig into anything. They're like, well, Pelosi's in charge, right? And she said it was garbage. Well, it's caused problems for me, too, because it's the first time in my life I've sort of liked Nancy Pelosi for a split second. So I don't know how to handle those feelings whatsoever. Uh, um, I, I did enjoy when she clapped at Trump. Oh, the clap. The clap was epic. Even It doesn't matter where you are politically. That was just fun to watch. That's a good Speaking gift. of getting rid of politicians or not getting rid of politicians, let's turn and talk about the state of Virginia, um, which has just seemed to fall apart in the news over the last week or so. Um, obviously, we have Governor Northam, who's um, having some issues with his memory, apparently, along with blackface. That was the um, best. We then have Justin Fairfax, who's having all sorts of issues. And then we have Mark Herring, who just came forward and started talking about blackface. Um, what do you think's going on in Virginia? What do you think needs to happen? Well, I, I, you know, I was looking this up because, you know, I personally don't care. This isn't even news to me. Like, sure, get them, get rid of them, whatever. Uh, I do find it hilarious, though, that Northam is the governor. Uh, Fair, Fairfax, Fairbanks, what's his name? Fairfax, yep. He's next in line. He's lieutenant governor. And then the next person that would be in line is the attorney general who, like you said, just came out trying to get, I guess, get ahead of it, wondering if there are any photos of him. The, the fact that Northam was like, yeah, that was me. I'm sorry. And it was like, you know what? I wasn't even at that party. It couldn't possibly be me. I don't know. Get rid of them. I don't care personally. They, they're all I, the the thing that actually and this will probably get me in trouble. But the thing that conf- concerns me is the accusations against Fairfax. While I'm not doubting their legitimacy, the the jury is not in yet, right? Like. He has not been. Uh, not at all. Right. So that one is, is a bit more concerning to me, whereas. But, you know, I, I don't know. I kind of expect have, this from people from Virginia to be dressing in black. <laughs> I, I'll be completely honest. I mean, when I look at this one, the Northam part, it's just like you said, it's laughable to me that he could basically come out and say it was me. And, again, I'm one for second chances. I'm one for, you know, even with him being a Democrat, if he wants to sit there and say, that was me, I have I know why that was wrong, I've learned, that's one thing. It's another thing when you come back out the next morning and completely change your story. It's even worse 
when you then talk about how you know it was wrong because you basically dabbled in blackface at one point or another uh, because you were like Michael Jackson and then a reporter asks you if you can still do the moonwalk and your wife has to tell you that's probably a bad idea yeah. at this apology press conference. The attorney general, I mean, like you said, getting out in front of it, the, the biggest thing that shocks me about the blackface piece is Ed Gillespie was chair of the RNC and White House counsel and didn't have a, an ops person who could find that picture during the campaign to just kill this early. Um, the fact that it took that long to surface is even more amazing to me, given today's state and age. And in terms of Fairfax, I, I mean, I'm with you. I, I'm torn. Fairfax was an up-and-comer. Fairfax was kind of a rising star. Um, and obviously, like you said, we now have two women, one of whom's a political scientist. I mean, uh, Vanessa, Ty Vanessa Tyson's a political scientist. My Twitter page has been full of nothing but we support Vanessa Tyson from the political science crowd the last week. I've had to mute lots of people because, like you said, it hasn't gone through any process whatsoever. Um, and it's also just the, the continuing concern of how do we handle these past accusations. Um, what do we do about them? It's very difficult in my head to wrap our heads around. And, and this is no different than when we catch a criminal 60 years later and they're a retired old person. Um, how do we punish the current person for uh, an act that did or didn't happen 20 years, 15, 10 years prior um, when they're in a different place than a different person now? It's just from a from a criminal justice, from a just personal accountability standpoint, that's difficult for me to wrap my head around. And especially in Fairfax's case, I mean, how could this all – imagine how this could all play out, Zach. I mean, Northam could have Fairfax resign and then get to choose his own successor, basically, um, yeah, which is very Nixonian, obviously. Yeah. Um, and definitely raises questions for what comes next. And then the question ultimately becomes, if you're thinking about it from a state of Virginia perspective, what do they end up with? Do they get the best person to be governor, or do they get the cleanest minority female that they can possibly find regardless of capability to be governor because they need to show that they've gone to the polar opposite swing on this? Yeah, got to get a token. Yeah, a lot of, like you said, Fairfax is an up-and-comer, but let me just, let me say this. This is something that should resonate with your your Trump supporters. I'm, uh, you know, Trump's right when he says we got to drain the swamp. Unfortunately, he's wrong about what we should refill it with. Um, and I see a lot of this as just people that should have been gone a long time ago that should be replaced anyways. So whether or not he should be replaced because he had a, he had a garbage Halloween costume versus garbage policies and, and real politics. But to your point, what happened to redemption, right? Like Christians love to talk about the, re the redeemer, Christ, the redeemer and all this stuff. And, you know, if you say sorry and you mean it and you're, you're a different person now and you've moved forward, et cetera, et cetera, that's, that's largely seemed to have gone away, um, at least as far as, public scrutiny is concerned. I mean, with real criminal justice, it was never there. But, you know, I I don't know. It, it, it doesn't really bother me. If he leaves, fine, whatever. I don't think it's indicative of the party. I don't think it's indicative of anything other than he clearly makes trash decisions. And again, like I said, it's just a... Just a very confusing scenario all the way around, and it's definitely for the state of Virginia. I mean, we know in the last week nothing's getting done at the highest levels of their executive side. Uh, sure I think that you need to figure out some type of 
conclusion to this drama very quickly. I'm with you, though. I mean, the Northam and the Herring stuff seems to be much more uh, black and white um, as far as what's happening with... No pun um, intended. Yeah, yeah, no pun intended. Yeah, God, I didn't even think about that. Um, <laughs> but then, obviously, what's happening with Fairfax, I mean, it needs to play out. I mean, it's it's not substantiated at this point. Um, but it'll be interesting to see sort of how the, the political dynamics, obviously, go back and forth. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Moving on from that, I guess we have the other uh, big news from this week. We already touched on it briefly, was Thursday's decision by the Supreme Court um, to put the stay in place on Louisiana's law related to restricting abortion access um, by requiring doctors to have medical privileges within hospitals nearby. Um, And obviously, as you pointed out earlier, Zach, John Roberts played a a key role uh, in this decision to stay. What were your thoughts on it? Well, I support the woman, a woman's right to choose up until pretty much whenever. I think, I think abortion is a non-starter politically. This, this is not, this is not an issue to me. I, I know what happens when abortion's made illegal. You know, women have been handcuffed to medical beds in places like El Salvador and their bodies investigated like crime scenes because abortion's illegal. I know what happens when it's made illegal. Uh, John Roberts appears to have a spine, actually, and stood up for the Constitution that he so very much touts. Um, yeah, I, I'm glad that it happened, and I hope that they do not get to roll back anything else regarding this because this is not anything that anyone in Washington should be talking about except maybe how to provide services more available and and uh, better funded as far as medical technology and sanitation, et cetera, is concerned. I guess my concern with this is, and you've said it and I've heard a lot of liberals say this over the last two days, um, is that John Roberts has grown a spine. In reality, John Roberts only voted to stay this. This wasn't a final decision. This wasn't saying that they disagreed with it. This was basically not allowing them to, to start acting on it. Um, and I think that's where we're really going to see what John Roberts is actually thinking. Um, I think it's interesting, obviously, that John Roberts has basically become the new Anthony Kennedy. Um, obviously, I don't think that's what Republicans were hoping for when John Roberts was put on the court, especially as Chief Justice directly. Um, but I think what we'll really start to see where Roberts is falling in terms of, of the new coalitions is what happens when they actually decide this case instead of just the temporary stay. Um, my guess is we're going to hear all about this case in October um, pretty quickly. I also thought it was interesting that Kavanaugh published a dissent here but took kind of the middling position um, and basically acknowledged some of the precedent from the Texas law and that he actually wanted to see what impact the Louisiana law would have because, as you mentioned, things like, you know, women's safety, there are those out making the argument that by requiring doctors to have medical privileges, it actually increases the odds of women's being safe um, during an abortion because there would be guaranteed medical care at a nearby facility. Um, and again, I don't disagree with you. I mean, the libertarian side of me very clearly says I just I just don't care about this particular issue. Um but I do recognize that politically it's an issue that whether I think it's political or not has been politicized to a point that it's always going to to sort of stand there because for somebody like Trump, this is a quick way to remind the base that 
this is where I stand on an issue that we know you all care about, um, whether it's genuine or not even. Right. And, you know, here's here's one solution. Make abortions illegal and mandatory to be legal at all uh, hospitals. How about that? I mean, we could increase access to it and therefore increase the amount of doctors, whatever that means, right? Like I'm sure nurse practitioner is not considered in this, but nurse practitioners are essentially doctors. There's, I say we expand it. That would, uh, that would counter your point as to this would make it safer in the long run. Well, if, if we didn't relegate it to small clinics that we also hinder by a billion other different restrictions that are completely constructed to minimize the amount of these clinics, not for women's safety, then this wouldn't be an issue. Yeah, and again, I mean, I think I I would enjoy seeing that attempted only to see how it played out, to be honest, um, because obviously we do have Supreme Court precedent there if we look back at what they did with the Washington pharmacists in 2016, um, basically keeping in, intact the, the law that, made it so that pharmacies had to dispense all FDA-approved drugs regardless of religious or moral reasons. Um, so I'd be curious to see how doctors responded to that. I'd be curious to see how hospital associations responded to that. Um, because obviously I think you'd have a lot of hospitals that would be completely fine with that and a lot of other hospitals that would have some, some serious concerns and some serious issues based on faith-based affiliations. Yeah, I mean, um, every – there are – let me think. I believe there are four or five campuses – of what was, what was previously two different hospital organizations, both Catholic. Now that's one. And this is where I live in Northern Kentucky. And all five of them, I believe they do not provide vasectomies. They do not provide hysterectomies. They certainly do not provide abortion. Uh, I, I don't, I don't know the specific ruling that you're referencing, but I'm not sure if they used to provide birth control even. I mean, People that want access to these things are hamstrung. They're hamstrung by religion at every turn. And so in, so in, in this case, I, don't care. I would have to go across the river to Ohio to a different state in order to obtain very basic medical procedures, which is ridiculous. And the whole, the whole concept is ridiculous to me that, that people care about unborn children, but then We've got such an abysmal record of actual children. Once they're born, no one cares about them. I mean, we've got real problems once we have these children that no one cares about. It's 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 all it's all an attempt to drum up support for the right. Yeah, and again, I mean, on the access part, I, I the libertarian side of me says we need to make this safe because it's going to happen, and I don't really want the government interfering in this particular area. Um, but it's again, how do we unring a bell that's been rung for, for a long time? And I mean, in reality, you have both sides sort of waiting for the next opportunity for the Supreme Court, in some cases to overturn Roe, in some cases to reaffirm Roe and hopefully settle this for 30 years. I think it's definitely going to be an interesting time to see sort of, sort of what's, what occurs. Yeah. Um, I guess interesting is a word for it, but personally, it's, it's, a word. it's exhausting yeah. <laughs> to me. I you know, it's also it's also a way to distract people from real issues, in my opinion. Uh, yeah. So it's very good at that. You know, people. I just people I look at it as a male in America. Nobody's ripping anything out of my body, so. 
Right. Hopefully. I, I wish they'd rip something out of mine. I, I got to go to Ohio for that, apparently. <laughs> uh, let's do one last story here for, for our show this week. Um, obviously, there have been some, some happenings related to the Trump investigation. We've obviously seen Trump's feelings about this in the State of the Union. Uh, and then yesterday, he came out pretty hard uh, with Adam Schiff when it became clear that Schiff was hiring former National Security Council aides to actually help him monitor what's happening within the Trump administration. What are your thoughts on where the investigation is, what you see coming, um, what shifts up to, any of the any of the above? Let me start with a question. Do you think that the White House laundry services are actually able to remove all of the sweat stains that Trump releases into his shirts every day now? Uh, or do you think he just has to buy new shirts? You know, here's the thing. I don't think Trump's nervous. I don't think Trump's sweating on this. I think Trump just goes straight to anger. <laughs> I think we bypass the sit and sweat part. Yeah, could be. I honestly think he thinks he's like Reagan, that he's Teflon and it doesn't matter. Yeah. But they wouldn't be able to if he sweated as much as he might need to. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I enjoyed it. <laughs> I think it's curious. I'd like to see more transparency into the entire thing. I'd like to see the investigation continue out, whether it finds anything or not. It's a, it's a principle of justice. Uh, they've clearly found enough to warrant its existence in the first place. And, you know, people, I believe this is Trump touched on this. He was like, you know, the red line was you cannot investigate my family's finances. Yeah, buddy, we can and we should. You're the president. That's uh, that's all fair play as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, this stuff goes back so far. Have you read anything about uh, Trump's business connections through the 80s and 90s with like Russian mob in New York? Everybody in the world. Yeah, I mean, so it's like. He's dirty. Everyone knows he's dirty. He knows we know he's dirty. Uh, I, I just I can't wait for it to come to a conclusion one way or the other. I guess I, here's my issue with it, and I don't disagree with any of that. I believe thorough investigations, thorough background checks, thorough looks at the finances, and I know that every president throws up their own unique hurdles, Trump more so than some others. But I'm sitting here. You know, his second State of the Union's done, and we're still harping on things that existed before he was elected. Why are we not focusing more energy on what we don't like about what he's done as president, not done said, those pieces? Because, again, I feel like it's missed opportunities. I feel like we're still looking at things that – there's nothing we know about Donald Trump today that we didn't know when he got elected. And, again, we may know more specifics today, but in the grand scheme of things, nobody is now like, oh, my gosh, the – the cleanest presidential candidate in history with the most angelic background has now turned out to not be that. He's always been this. Um, and it seems like we're still acting surprised, and Democrats especially are still just digging into parts where, you know, it's no different for me than when Trump wouldn't let go of Obama's birth certificate. Once he's been president for three years, who cares where he was born? If you can't go after him on substantive policy, he's already there. Well, first of all, we can... We can we can easily go after uh, Trump's policies. I mean, not that he knows what those policies were that his people have enacted, but you know the the first couple of years were a nightmare. Uh, Scott Pruitt absolutely decimated the EPA, uh, just be almost beyond repair. Um, so of course we can of course we can go after that stuff. But here's the big difference between Trump's investigation for 
criminal offenses. That's that's what's being investigated, right? Versus a completely baseless uh, attempt to discredit Obama based on a piece of paper that we all know exists. I think this is so much more serious. And I'm not surprised personally when this stuff comes out. I find I get a little giddy over it. I find joy <laughs> in seeing Roger Stone get pulled out of his house uh, and and thrown in prison, hopefully thrown in prison, thrown in jail, and then quickly bonded out for however much money. So none of it's surprising to me. None of it distracts me from criticizing the policies being enacted. And I would suggest that your suggestion is actually is actually detrimental because you're you're minimizing the the seriousness of this insane and equivocating it with the birth certificate and also in saying like, well, why can't we focus on current things? And it's like, well, this is current because he's still president and this is still an ongoing investigation since that time period. And the fact that it's gone on this long is, I think, representative of the amount of stuff they have uncovered. Yeah, no, and again, I mean, on the seriousness side, I, I don't disagree. This is definitely more serious than the birth certificate. Agreed completely there. But again, until we get to a final report, until we get to some concrete takeaways, it just seems like it keeps going. Um, and I think that's the part that gets grading for those on the right, whether they support Trump or not. Um, and I think you're starting to see some of this play out even in D.C. I mean, yesterday, obviously, uh, acting Attorney General Whitaker is testifying before the House, and he's in committee, and he's talking to, I think it was Gerald Nadler. Um, You're five minutes and he was right, there sir. voluntarily for five-minute rounds and flat out called out Nadler on his last question and said, you're over your five minutes, um, which just led to this. I mean, it's humorous if you don't think about how serious it is back and forth. And the question was the question a lot of people probably want answered. Have you ever been asked to approve any request or action to be taken by the special counsel, which is clearly hinting on are you being pressured to direct Mueller in a certain direction? Um, and that's the question where the immediate response is, I see your five minutes is up. Um, so, again, I will also say that as much as it irritates me that this is still dragging on, I don't think everybody on the right is doing what they could to bring it to an efficient ending either. No, absolutely not. And, uh, you know, the five-minute thing, that cracked me up because it, what is this, speed dating? Like, five, you know, five-minute rounds, I – the fact that he wanted to keep it to the second is, in my opinion, if that question had been different, if that question had been less serious and less. Do you like puppies? Yeah, he would have answered it. It wasn't a it wasn't a time issue. It was a content issue. Yep. Well, like I said, it's been a, it's been a very interesting week. So I think that's going to be where we, we wrap it up for this episode. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We hope you like what you heard. Listener support is obviously what keeps our show going, and we truly appreciate all of you for that. Subscribing to the show also helps, as does sharing our episodes. Easy to do in whatever podcast app you're using. Uh, find the little share symbol. It's normally a triangle. Click on that and send it out. Uh, word of mouth also. Best advertising we could possibly get, and we'd greatly appreciate it. And leaving reviews and ratings anywhere on iTunes. If you have questions, comments, corrections, or just random thoughts you want to share, make sure to reach out to us at mail at politicsguys.com or on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash politicsguyspage, and we're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, Will Miller, and Bruce Johnson. This show is produced by Will Miller. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. Zach and I will both be there, and we hope you'll join us then.